0: Well, speaking of songs that we love, uh, like the last one we just sang, of all the songs ever written, the one song that has been recorded the greatest number of times by the greatest number of artists is Amazing Grace. You got it. This classic Christian hymn written in 1779 by John Newton, who was a notorious slave trader who then was radically saved at sea. And became a preacher in England. I, I'm assuming most of you know his story, but in case you don't, let me just read for you a summary of his testimony uh, that uh, James Montgomery Boyce included in his book, Whatever Happened to the Gospel of Grace. He says, Newton was raised in a Christian home in which he was taught verses of the Bible, but his mother died when he was only six years old, and he was sent to live with a relative who hated the Bible and mocked Christianity. Newton ran away to see... He was wild in those years and was known for being able to swear for two hours without repeating himself. He was forced to enlist in the British Navy, but he deserted, was captured, and was beaten publicly as a punishment. Eventually, Newton got into the Merchant Marine and went to Africa. In his memoirs, he wrote that he went to Africa for one reason only, quote, that I might sin my full." Newton fell in with a Portuguese slave trader in, which, in, in whose home he was cruelly treated. This man often went away on slaving expeditions. And when he was gone, his power passed to his African wife, the chief woman of his harem. She hated all white men and vented her hatred on Newton. He says that for months he was forced to grovel in the dirt, eating his food from the ground like a dog. He was beaten mercil- mercilessly if he touched it. In time, thin and emaciated, Newton made his way to the sea where he was picked up by a British ship making its way up the coast to England. When the captain of the ship learned that the young man knew something about navigation as a result of being in the British Navy, he made him a ship's mate. But even then, Newton fell into trouble. One day when the captain was ashore, Newton broke out the ship's supply of rum and got the crew drunk. He was so drunk himself that when the captain returned and struck him on the head, Newton fell overboard and would have drowned if one of the sailors had not quickly hauled him back on board. One other account that I read of his life, I don't know if it was this occasion or another occasion, he fell overboard and they literally harpooned him to drag him back onto the boat. Near the end of one voyage, as they were approaching Scotland, the ship ran into bad weather and was blown off course. Water poured in and the ship began to sink. The young prof- profligate was sent down into the hole to pump water. The storm lasted for days. Newton was terrified. He was sure the ship would sink and he would drown. But in the hold of the ship, as he desperately pumped water, the God of all grace, whom he had tried to forget, but who had never forgotten him, brought to his mind Bible verses he had learned in his home as a child. The way of salvation opened up to him. He was born again and deeply transformed. Much later, when he was again in England, Newton began to study theology and eventually became a preacher, first in a little town called Olney and later in London. He's the one who authored Amazing Grace. And really, the first verse of Amazing Grace, probably the most familiar lyric uh, ever penned, expresses in very simple yet profound language how Newton uh, viewed his uh, miraculous salvation. We know how it goes. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. And so he compared his divine deliverance from a life of sin to a blind man miraculously receiving his sight. And we know from the scriptures that blindness is a metaphor throughout the Bible, to describe the spiritual darkness that all of us live in because of our inability to understand the truth uh, of God unless God's grace opens up our eyes to see and to believe. The Bible also likens Jesus Christ to the light, who has the, the ability to dispel the darkness in our lives. And this is, as we've no- noted, a, a, uh, one of the major themes of the Gospel of John all the way from chapter 1 up to where we are right now in chapter 9, we've seen Jesus being presented as the light of the world and then presenting himself as the light of the world. And this really climaxed in the last chapter that we were looking at, John chapter 8, verse 12, at the the end of the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, when the lights that had lit up the city for seven days were extinguished, He said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. And so we know uh, chapter 8 ended with the Pharisees attempting to stone Jesus. They didn't care for uh, this presentation of himself as the light of the world. They considered this, along with the other things he said, as blasphemous claims. And last week we saw in verse 59 therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. And then we come to chapter 9, where it says, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And so after supernaturally escaping that life-threatening situation uh, in the days following the Feast of Booze, Jesus encountered a man who had been blind from birth and, as we'll see, healed him. And this is, uh, if you're keeping track, this is the sixth of seven signs or miracles that John strategically selected to include in his account of the life and ministry of Jesus, specifically to prove his deity. There was many miracles he could have chosen from, right? He could have chose to include, but he chose seven. And this is the sixth. There was the turning of water into wine. There was the healing of the nobleman's son. There was the healing of the paralytic. There was the feeding of the 5,000 or the multitude. Uh, There was the walking on the water and the stilling of the storm. And now here we have the restoring Uh, sight to a man born blind. The last one is going to be in chapter 11 when he raises Lazarus from the dead. Now we know that this man in chapter 9 was not the only blind person that Jesus ever healed. The other gospels record many similar uh, cases of blind people being healed by Jesus, but what made this particular healing unique and set apart from all the other blind men that were healed is this man was born blind. He was born blind. He didn't become blind. He was born blind. And so consequently, this story is a perfect illustration of what it's like for sinners like us to be delivered out of spiritual darkness into God's marvelous light. This man's physical transformation that we'll witness here uh, from blindness to sight is an analogy of the spiritual transformation that took place in his life and the life of all those who trust Christ as their Lord and Savior, John Newton included. And so we're going to see as, this, as the story of this blind man's miraculous healing uh, unfolds and, and progresses, and as the man interacted with more and more people regarding what happened to him, you see him growing or progressing in his understanding of who Jesus is. Let me just point this out quickly as, as we begin. Look at verse 11. Someone said, uh, how then were your eyes opened? Verse 11. He answered, The man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed and I received sight. So at the beginning, all he knew was there was a guy named Jesus. Verse 17. So they said to the blind man again, What do you say about him? The Pharisees questioning, since he opened your eyes. And he said, He's a prophet. Now he's more than just a man named Jesus. Now he's a prophet, right? Verse 33. If this man were not from God, he could, not do, he, he could do nothing. And so now he's not just a prophet, but now he's a man uh, from God. And then notice verse 35, Jesus heard that they had put him out and finding him, he said, do you believe the son of man? Verse 38, and he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And so now he was the son of man, he was his savior, he was his Lord. And so I think the simplest way to grasp Uh, The meaning of this chapter is just to note that progression of the man's faith in Jesus Christ. And it became clear and clear to him who Jesus really was until he finally came into full focus as the Son of Man and he committed his life to follow him as his Lord and Savior. And so uh, you'll recognize this uh, very easily that the greatest miracle in this chapter is not the immediate opening of this man's literal eyes to see what he had never seen before, but the gradual opening of his spiritual eyes to see Jesus. And so some of you may be in that process this morning, that you don't see Jesus clearly yet. You may think you do, but you don't fully see who he is. And so there's really four stages Of faith in Jesus Christ that we see here in this passage, and they really represent four different perspectives on who Jesus is or four different places where people are in their relationship to Jesus Christ, and every one of us here today has one of these four perspectives about Jesus and is is, is in one of these four places when it comes to our relationship with Jesus Christ. You may have heard of a man called Jesus. That's where you might be. You, You know of a guy named Jesus, but that's all you know. Uh, You may think that Jesus was a prophet. You might think, wow, this guy was a special guy. He was unique. He was set apart. You may also consider that he was a man from God. He was, uh, again, something uh, uh, beyond human. Or you may know him as the Son of Man, as your Lord and Savior. And so let's figure out where we are this morning as we go through uh, this text and look at the progression of faith in this man's life. First of all, you may have heard of a man called Jesus. Verse one: As he passed by, he saw a blind man. uh, saw a man blind from birth. Uh, Blind people in those days had had little or no opportunity for employment, so they were left to fend for themselves on the streets, and so they would beg to survive. And most of the time, you see blind people, or that we see, or or, were exposed to blind people in the scriptures, is they were blind beggars. Right? Uh, They were begging on the on the street, and Jesus would either come up to them or they would call out to Jesus. And uh, he, would, he would heal them. Verse 2, And the disciples asked him, the disciples were traveling with Jesus, they asked him, Rabbi, teacher, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? And so unlike Jesus, who saw a man in need of compassion and mercy, the disciples just saw this guy as a theological puzzle that piqued their curiosity. As one commentator said, for them, the blind man was an unsolved riddle rather than a sufferer to be relieved. And so they just assumed, I mean, notice, they just, they just Rabbi, who sinned? They assumed that this man was born blind as a result of some, some sin that either his parents had committed or he had committed. And I think they may have based their thinking on a misinterpretation of Exodus chapter 34, verse 7 which says that God will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Some people think that basically your kids or your grandkids can be punished for your sin. Well, that's not at all what this verse is teaching. It doesn't teach that God judges subsequent generations for a person's sin. It simply establishes the basic principle that one generation typically sets the tone for the next When it comes to how they live their lives. In other words, our kids and our grandkids will be affected by our sin in that they will be prone to practice the same sinful habits and patterns that they saw in us when they were growing up. You understand? And so consequently, they will experience the same punishments that we do if they continue on in the patterns of sin that we set for them. However, the Jews in in Jesus' day misconstrued this verse. To mean that if a person suffered for some kind of uh, or suffered of some kind of ailment, it was because his parents had committed a sin against God, and some rabbis even taught that a fetus could commit sin. Kind of odd, right? Um, but they could commit sin while in the mother's womb. In fact, the the kicking of the child inside the womb was evidence of its sinful state. So I'm looking at Billy back there. You got two little sinners in there, huh? They're kicking away inside Corey. That's evidence of their sinful nature, right? That's what the rabbis uh, thought. And so, again, the disciples were just caught in this way of thinking that that obviously somebody had sinned because God would never punish someone by causing them to be born blind. Well, how, how are we to think about this? This is very practical for us today. I think generally speaking, we know that all sickness and suffering in the world is ultimately the result of sin, right? And what I mean by that, as a result of the fall of Adam in the Garden of Eden, sin and death entered into the world. And so we we know that just just all the bad and the evil and the cancer and the things that we see in the world, they're ultimately a result of sin. That's not how God intended the world to be in the garden, right? That, That was perfect. There was no sickness, there was no disease, right, until sin entered uh, the human race. And so generally speaking, why is there all this poverty? Why is there all this pain? It's a result of sin in general. And I think we could also say that certain sins can have physical consequences. And we have to balance this, this out with what Jesus said in John chapter 5 to the man that, was, uh, that he healed uh, in, in Bethesda. And uh, remember, he said this. Uh, in, in, in John 5, 14, Jesus found him in the temple and said, And behold, you become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. So the implication is maybe his sin had resulted in some kind of physical ailment or some kind of, there was some kind of physical consequences. We know that because uh, remember David in Psalm 32, how he talked about his body was wasting away. Right, there was physical effects uh, to his sin and hiding that sin. Romans one twenty seven talks about how God gives people over to homosexuality and in, and, and they receive the due punishment in their bodies. Right, and, and some would interpret that as, as some kind of venereal disease. Right, uh, AIDS and the AIDS epidemic as a result of the immorality uh, in our culture. 1 Corinthians eleven thirty, 30, right? There were some who were drinking judgment upon themselves during the Lord's Supper, not honoring Christ, not examining themselves. And he said, some of you are, are, are getting sick and some of you are actually dying, right? Uh, and so, so there is this sense in Scripture that there are certain sins that have physical consequences. But having said all that, to assume that a person's disability or sickness is the judgment of God... For some sin that they've committed or their parents committed is beyond anyone's ability or authority to say. I mean, only God knows why a person is the way they are. I mean, the the story of Job, right, is is the classic example. Did, Did Job do anything wrong? Was he in sin and that's why God punished him by destroying everything, taking everything away in his life? No. In fact, it was to prove his integrity, and so we, we can't just, you know, make these general sweeping statements, well, that person got cancer. They must have been, in, or that person's in the hospital. You know, that, they must have been doing something wrong, right? No. When you think about even babies who are born with defects and, and handicaps, and you go, oh, man, is that, is that some kind of judgment on, that, on those parents for, for some sin in their lives? No, listen. God is able to use those bad kinds of things to accomplish good things in people's lives and to bring glory to himself. And that's exactly what Jesus says in verse 3. Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Listen, nobody sinned. This isn't about sin, it's about my glory. It's about glorifying God. And God's about to get a lot of glory, right, through this man's a miraculous healing. Jesus didn't view this man's condition as God's punishment for some offense against him, but as an opportunity for God to accomplish his work. God sovereignly ordained this man's blindness so he could display his glory in the midst of this seeming tragedy. We know that based on Exodus chapter 4, verse 11, when Moses was dialoguing with, with, with God about his inadequacy, uh, of being the guy, the deliverer of, e, of Israel from Egypt. And the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth, or who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? So don't think you have to um, protect God, and don't blame God for that person's blindness. No, God takes credit for it. And he's also going to take the glory, get the glory from it, Right? Genesis fifty twenty. What you meant for evil, what Satan means for evil, God means for what? Good. God works all things together for good to those who love and are called according to His purpose. Second Corinthians twelve nine. That God's power is perfected in our weakness. Right. I mean Paul's sickness. Uh, his thorn in the flesh. Some would say it had something to do with an, an ailment to the eyes. He had some eye disease. I personally think it was one of the false teachers in the church in Corinth. But either way, the point was he had asked God, "Would you take this away?" And He said, "No." Right. So wait a minute. Doesn't God? Doesn't God always heal? Right? Isn't that God's will that he always heals people? And if you're not healed then you lack faith and that's why you're not healed and there must be some sin in your life and that's why you're still sitting in that wheelchair or you're still on that whatever, right? No. That's ridiculous. Say that to Johnny Erickson Tada, right? Who's been in a wheelchair her entire life. Why hasn't God healed her? Because guess what? God's getting a whole lot more glory uh, through her being in the wheelchair than if she was up walking, Right? And she's accepted that. She's embraced that. So God allowed this man to be born blind so that he could demonstrate his power and grace and mercy and wisdom. Notice verse 4. Jesus said, We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is the day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And so as the hostility of unbelief increased, Jesus knew his time was short And the twilight of his ministry was beginning. It was only maybe six months away from when he would be crucified. Uh, The darkness would soon fall. He would be arrested. He would be killed. And after he died and he rose again and returned to heaven, his disciples would continue to carry on his light, which we're doing today, right? We're continuing to carry on his light. And I think this principle here applies to us when it says we must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is today. Night is coming when no one can work. In other words, you and I, we have a limited amount of time to serve Christ. So we need to make the most of the time that God gives us. You've probably heard the little plaque or or heard the phrase, only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Have you heard of that? Well, that's not... The entire quote, this is how it goes. The poet wrote this, Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And when I'm dying, how happy I'll be if the lamp of my life has been burned out for thee. And then Leonard Ravenhill, a man who talked much about revival, Said, do you think all Christians die happy? He said, not on your life because they've why he says, because some have misused their time and wasted their lives. Great little book you could read by John Piper, Don't Lay, Don't Waste Your Life. And uh, it's, it's based on this expression only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. I encourage you to get that book and read it. Look at verse 6. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes. Now, this is interesting because in Matthew 9, Jesus healed two men by touching their eyes. In Mark 8, he healed a blind man by spitting in his eyes. That's kind of weird, but he did that, right? But in this instance, he mixed saliva with dirt to make clay, which he plastered on the man's eyes. You say, why did he do that? Well... I think it's probably because the man's blindness was congenital. Um, In other words, something didn't develop correctly with his eyes when he was born, right? When he was developing in the womb. And so Jesus was performing a creative act here just like he did when he created Adam. He created Adam from the dust of the ground, right? And so he was doing this creative act, right? And and basically recreating this guy's uh, eyes. Verse 7. And he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. Don't miss that, capital S. So he went away and washed and came back seen. So Jesus commanded him to go to wash in the pool of Siloam, which is located at the southeastern end of the city of Jerusalem. And notice how John emphasized here that the name of the pool was sent. That's what Siloam means. It means sent. And I think he was making a parallel between the pool and who? Jesus, who was the sent one, the one that God had sent, right, to save sinners from their sin. Um, Notice this, that Jesus never told him that he would be healed. He just said, go and wash in the pool. And so he was requiring this man to demonstrate what? Faith. Faith. I think, obviously, it's implied here, right? This guy put all this mud on my eyes. i got to find some water and wash it out. Maybe that was part of the, maybe it was just more practical. Just the mud was there, to, the irritation was just so he would have to go wash it out somewhere. And so he had to go to the pool to wash his eyes off. But what an, what an, what an incredible moment that must have been. I mean, and it's not even recorded here. He says, so he went away and washed and came back seeing. Mean, it's almost like, oh, matter of fact, you know, <laughs> just kind of, you know, but I mean, can you imagine the incredible moment when this man's eyes were opened and he saw for the first time, I mean, never saw before in his life and he, maybe the first thing he saw was a reflection of himself in the water. And then he looked around and he, he saw the trees and he saw the sky and I mean, some of us that didn't know we needed glasses, right, for years, and then all of a sudden we got glasses, and we're just like, whoa, I didn't realize everything was so clear and crystal clear and beautiful, and uh, my parents tell the story about when, when my sister got glasses, and she got, came out of the doctor's office and, and got in the car and was driving home, and she said, hey, mom, look, the trees have leaves, <laughs> apparently she just had seen this big green mass, right, and, uh, and so, just even glasses were like, wow, what a difference. But can you imagine not seeing? All you saw was black. And then you got to see everything that is here to see. Amazing. Verse 8 Therefore, the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, Is not this the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, This is he. So, others were saying, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I'm the one, I'm the guy. So the people that knew him began to argue among themselves about who he was. Some weren't sure what to think. Others said, no, this is definitely the guy. Others said, no, he's just a lookalike. This is a case of mistaken identity. Surely that couldn't be the same guy. I mean, he used to be blind. How can he see now, right? But the man kept insisting that I'm the guy. I was the guy who was blind, right, who used to sit by the side of the road and beg, Verse 10, so they were saying to him, well, well, then how were your eyes opened? And he answered, the man who was called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed and I received sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. Well, you can imagine the frustration of this guy. He wouldn't even know what, who he was looking for. Because he, couldn't, he didn't see Jesus. He never saw Jesus. He was blind when Jesus in, in, interacted with him, right? All he had was the sound of his voice, right? To go by. So his friends are, are demanding an explanation. And so he just replayed the events just the way they happened. And it, it made them want to, to go see this amazing miracle worker themselves. They like, well, where is this guy? I, we want to meet him. And he says, well, I don't know. And again, even if he did know, he wouldn't be able to recognize him because he never saw what he looked like. All he knew at this point was there was a guy named Jesus who had healed him. And I think he's a lot like people today who've heard about Jesus. They even acknowledge and accept the fact that he truly existed. But you need to understand that just believing that Jesus was a historical figure isn't enough to save you. It's not enough if you say, oh, I believe in Jesus. Of course, who doesn't believe in Jesus? Well, if that's all you know about Christ, if that's all you know about Jesus, you just know his name, you have yet to fully see Jesus and you are still living in the dark. You're still spiritually blind. Secondly, you may think that Jesus was a prophet. You might be beyond that he's just you know, this guy named Jesus. He, you're beyond that. You may think Jesus was a prophet. Look at how this story continues. Verse 13, they brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind. Now it was a Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also were asking him again how he received his sight. And he said to them, he applied clay to my eyes and I wash and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. It's all about the Sabbath. Them, right? But others were saying, How could a man who was a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. And so, this mysterious case um, to the man's friends and acquaintances, uh, they wanted to kind of get a second opinion here, if you will. And so, they took the man to the relig- religious authorities of the day, hoping that they would be able to offer some explanation of what had happened. And yet they couldn't get past the fact that Jesus had healed this man on the Sabbath, that he had performed illegal work, spitting on the ground, stirring up some mud, putting it on the guy's eyes. That was work. He was working. He was working on the Sabbath, right? I'm serious. That's what they thought. He was performing work. This was illegal. He broke the law. And so the Pharisees concluded that Jesus could, he couldn't be from God because if he was, he wouldn't have broke the law. He wouldn't have broke God's law. But there were others who argued if this guy was such a big sinner, such a lawbreaker, then how could God use him to reform these miracles? I mean, can you see the dilemma there? So there were some who who, who argued this back and forth. And again, it sounds like what Nicodemus had already said to Jesus back in chapter 3, verse 2. He said, Rabbi, we know that you've come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So there were some already beginning to be advocates for the Lord, for Christ, amongst the Pharisees, Nicodemus being one of them. And, and, and I think we could just say this, ever since Christ set foot on this earth, men have always been forced to take sides. You're either for him or you're against him. There, there's no middle ground. There's no maybe. You either believe in him or you reject him. Verse 17, so they said to the blind man again, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, he is a prophet. So they asked him a second time. It's, it's almost like they're interrogating this guy. I mean, this, this amazing day, right, this amazing blessing turned into this grievous process. We had to go through all this, this interrogation process with these religious leaders But he concluded that Jesus must be a prophet of some kind, right? Like Moses or Elijah or Elisha, all of them performed great miracles. Uh, This was the same conclusion that the woman at the well came to about Jesus. Chapter 4, verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet when he basically knew her history and how many times she had been married and divorced and the fact that she was living with a guy that wasn't even her husband. uh, He had some supernatural insight. She said, "'You're a prophet.'" Verse 18, "'The Jews then did not believe it of him "'that he had been blind and had received sight "'until they called the parents of the very one "'who had received his sight and questioned them, saying, "'Is this not your son who you say was born blind? "'Then how does he now see?' "'His parents answered them and said, "'We know that this is our son and that he was born blind.'" But how he now sees, we do not know, or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. Note this, verse 22. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. Talk about passing the buck, right? Right? So, again, this is so amazing that that they still would not believe this guy. And so they called in his parents, right, to to verify that that this is your son and that he was truly born blind. Is this your kid? Yeah. Was he born blind? Yes, he was. And so they still refused the evidence and did whatever they could to explain away the miracle. And, and again, they're like, there's got to be some mistake here. And so even though the parents provided conclusive evidence, they still rejected it. And again, the parents were afraid of being excommunicated from the synagogue. And so they evaded the issue and says their son was old enough to answer for himself. And you say, what was the big deal? Why were they so afraid? Well, being excommunicated from the synagogue, and, and, and it was like being excommunicated from Judaism itself. I mean, this was a Jew's worst Nightmare, worse fear to lose all the privileges of being a Jew. You would be treated right like a, a Gentile and a tax collector and a and a sinner. But that's nothing compared to being barred from the glories of heaven and having to spend eternity in hell for rejecting Christ. And that's what will happen to people who think that Jesus was just a prophet. That isn't enough to save you. If you think, well, he was just he was a prophet. He was somebody special, kind of like Muhammad. You know, somebody, just one of those special guys. Listen, if that's all you think about Jesus Christ, you still have yet to fully see Jesus, and you are living in the dark. You are still spiritually blind. There's a third stage in this man's faith. You may consider Jesus a man from God, a man from God. Look at verse 24 the Pharisees ramp it up here and, 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 and uh, increase this interrogation process. He, and it says in verse 24, so a second time they called the man who had been blind. They already talked to him one time. Now they call him back in a second time after they had talked to his parents. And they said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And, and uh, I don't think this was necessarily... Um, them saying, hey, listen, give the glory to God for this miracle. Don't give glory to Jesus. I don't think that's what they were saying. This was, a, this was like swearing to tell the truth in a court of law. In other words, if you remember uh, back in Joshua chapter seven, when Achan stole the stuff, right? Uh, when he was supposed to destroy everything uh, in Jericho and they took some stuff uh, and he hid it in his tent and then the, they, the Israelites lost the next battle and then uh, God revealed to Joshua, hey, the problem is this guy stole some stuff, and so he went and confronted Achan, and he, what is the first thing that he said? Achan, give glory to God. In other words, stop lying. Be honest. Tell the truth. And so the, the, so the Pharisees are trying to pressure this guy to change his story. Well, we know you're lying. Come on, admit it. This guy didn't heal you. He's a sinner. You're, you're making this up. Verse 25, he then answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, and here it is, that though I was blind, now I see. I once was blind, but now I see. That's where John Newton, right, got his line from Amazing Grace. Listen, I, I can't debate you as to the character of this man, Because that's beyond my knowledge, that's beyond my experience, but there is one thing I do know. I was blind, but now I see. And that's my story, and I'm sticking to it, (laughs) okay? That's basically what he was saying. Verse 26, so they said to him, why did, or what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear again? You do not want to become his disciples too, do you? I'm starting to like this guy, right? the the Pharisees just kept pestering him to tell them how it really happened. And after the third time, he just finally got fed up and he was probably thinking, listen, you guys don't believe I was blind, but I'm beginning to believe you're deaf because I've told you three times now already and you don't listen. And then he began to get sarcastic with them and basically said, no, I get it. You're interested in becoming one of his disciples, aren't you? Well, You can imagine what they thought of that, right? You don't have to imagine because John tells us, verse 28, they reviled him and said, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he is from. Even after all the times Jesus told him where he was from, right? So they considered his response, this blind man's response, as an insult, began to dress him down and to demonize him, right? Just like they had demonized Christ. We learned that last week. Uh, they claimed to be abiding by the authority of Moses, whose law for centuries had been the standard of Israel's religion. But this Jesus guy is a nobody, some, some vagrant prophet who doesn't keep the law. And so they, they failed to see that a man greater than Moses was in their midst why? Because Moses never healed a man born blind, but Jesus did. Verse 30, notice the blind man, or not the formerly blind man, turns the theological tables on them. The man answered and said to them, "'Well, here is an amazing thing that you do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes.'" We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. So he's saying, you mean to tell me you don't know who this guy is or where he's from? I mean, you're the religious experts. Shame on you. Listen, I'm the first guy that I know of in history, the history of the world, to be born blind to regain my sight. You guys got a problem on your hands. You got to figure this out. I mean, if God doesn't listen to sinners, then how could Jesus have performed this miracle if he was under divine condemnation? And again, this this healing, this miracle, should have been evidence, just undeniable evidence, to prove that Jesus was a man sent from God. And if the Pharisees had, had known the Old Testament better, Than they claimed to, they would have known that Jesus was the Messiah because uh, in the Old Testament it was prophesied that in the coming Messianic age, uh, you would know you were in the Messianic age by the evidence that people who were blind, their sight would be restored. That was just one of the, 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 um, the marks of the Messianic age, of the Messiah, that he would be able to heal blind people. Jesus quoted Old Testament scripture about those passages of the restoration of of sight to the blind. Verse 34, they answered him, you were born entirely in sins and you are teaching us, so they put him out. So here these Pharisees are feeling upstaged by this beggar, so they accused him of being a sinner, and they threw him out. Just like the disciples had suggested earlier, the Pharisees blamed his blindness on some sinners. And it's like, hey, listen, man, you're, you're a sinner. What, what, what right do you have to say these things to us? And they did to him, in that little phrase, so they put him out. They did to him what his parents were scared was going to happen to them. He got excommunicated from the synagogue. He got kicked out of the Jewish religion. He was barred from the synagogue and stripped of all privileges as a Jew. That's all wrapped up in that little phrase, so they put him out. And some of you know what that's like, not because you uh, were a Jew, uh, raised a Jew, but that's what happens sometimes when people stand up against the traditional religion that they were born and bred in And they come to Christ, and then they confront those who are still in this traditional religion, right, that they're being led astray, they're on their way to hell because they're trusting in their religion and their traditions and their rituals and not Christ alone for their salvation, and oftentimes they get kicked out, right, they're ostracized. And I think it's interesting that when a Jewish person, in particular, embraced Jesus Christ as the true Messiah, and that happens even today, they're kicked out of Judaism. They're treated like an outcast, a tax collector, and a sinner, which, by the way, the consolation to all that is, that's a great category to be in, since that is the very group of people Jesus came to save, right? I didn't didn't come to save the righteous people, I came to... To, to save the sinners, right? I didn't come for the, for the people who think they're healthy. I came for the people that are sick. But again, even if you consider Jesus to be a man from God, that's what this man was coming to. He was saying, hey, this guy's got to be from God. But he's not God. See, this is the difference. You may believe that, that Jesus is a man from God, but you don't believe he is God, right? Right? Then you have yet to fully see Jesus and are still living in the dark. You're still spiritually blind. Quickly, notice the last section here. You must know Jesus as the Son of Man. Verse 35. Jesus heard that they had put him out. In finding him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? See, he still doesn't know fully who Jesus is. Jesus said to him, you have both seen him and he is the one who is talking with you. Like right now, it's I'm the guy, okay? I'm the son of man. Verse 38, and he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. So how cool is this? Jesus heard that they had put him out in finding him. Guess what? Jesus heard that this guy got kicked out and he went looking for him to take him in. Like the good shepherd that we're going to find out about in chapter 10, there's a connection here, we'll see that in the weeks to come, but like the good shepherd, he sought out his, this lost sheep and brought him into his flock. Listen, you know, you say, you hear people say, well, I found Jesus or I found God. No, you didn't find anybody, he found you, right? And, and so how cool is this? So, so it's, it's, it's as if Jesus said here, listen, if they don't want you, I'll take you. I'll take you. And those of us who are cast out of other religions for Jesus' sake or or, or lose our families, lose our reputations, lose uh, maybe work. um, Listen, we receive a greater blessing in fellowship with Christ and his followers. Christ is the great consolation, right? When we pay some price to follow him. The question is, are you willing to consider the cost to follow Christ, to hate father, mother, husband, wife, son, daughter, brother, sister, yes, even your own life, to be a disciple of Christ? I mean, that's the kind of commitment that Jesus required of this man. But he needed first to realize that Jesus was more than just a man. He was more than just a prophet. He was not even a, a, just a holy man sent from God. He was the Son of Man, he says, do you believe in the Son of Man? This title, Son of Man, is used 13 times in the Gospel of John. It was Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself about 80 times in the Gospels, and it was linked to the phrase, the Son of Man, back in Daniel chapter 7, right, where it was talking about the Son of Man who is coming, the Ancient of Days, right, uh, who, would, uh, who would have an everlasting kingdom and dominion. It was a reference to the Messiah, And so Jesus invited him to place his faith in him as this Messiah, as his Savior, as his Lord. And notice the man instantly responded in faith. He said, I believe. But notice what else he did. He what? He worshiped. He worshiped. And can I just say this? Do you notice that Jesus didn't say, oh, no, 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 no. Don't you worship me. Remember Paul and, and Barnabas and Peter when, when people began to worship? Well, they say, whoa, 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 don't worship. We're men just like you, right? Jesus didn't say that. Why? Because he wasn't a man just like him. He was worthy of worship. He was God. And so he didn't stop this guy. Worship was the natural response because he was not just a healed man, but he was a saved soul. This was the greatest day of this guy's life. I mean, talk about a two-for-one special, right? Not only he got his physical sight, but he got his spiritual sight. And again, the greatest miracle was not the opening of his eyes, but the opening of his heart to fully see Jesus. So he no longer had to live in the dark, but could live in the light. And then notice how Jesus closes this account by preaching a little mini-sermon on spiritual blindness, Verse 39, And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see and that those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, We are not blind too, are we? Jesus said to them, If if you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. So Jesus was simply saying, Listen, I came to judge ungodly people who think they know everything, right? Like the Pharisees. Those who see and and become blind are those who trust themselves and pride themselves, which blinds them to their need of Christ. And so Jesus doesn't make them blind. They blind themselves by rejecting Him. The blind who come to sight are those who admit their helplessness and inability to Inability, and so they trust Christ as their Savior. So the point is that those who admit that they do not see, right? If you admit that you're blind, God gives you sight, but if you say, oh, I can see perfectly without Christ, well, guess what? You're confirmed in your blindness. And so the Pharisees, they got the hint. Hey, are you insinuating that we're blind? Exactly. They were the ones who were spiritually blind. They were blinded by their pride. They were blinded by their self-righteousness and tradition. And if they acknowledged their blindness, they could have been freed from all this, but they deliberately rejected the light. And some of you may be doing the same thing. That in your mind, your mind's already made up Rather than considering the evidence about Jesus, you, you, you simply just explain him away in your mind. And if you would take an honest look at the facts, you would see that he is the Son of God. And if you trust him, you'll be saved. Listen, we are all this blind man. We are all born blind. We were born dead in our trespasses and sins, and we are by nature objects of God's wrath. The good news of the gospel is that if we're going to admit that we're blind and that we can't see, right, that we're sinful and that we need a Savior, then our sins will be forgiven, and we can be saved from God's wrath. But if we say we need nothing, I can see fine. I don't need Jesus. Then guess what? There's no forgiveness for you. And I think that's what he means. Your sin remains. If you say we see, your sin remains. I'll close with the words of Jesus to the church in Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3, verse 17. Jesus said to this lukewarm church, Because you say I am rich and I have become wealthy and I have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may become rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourselves, and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed, and I salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Behold, I stand at the door and what? Knock. If anyone hears my voice, and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your gracious invitation in this story of the, the man born blind and how you're calling out to all of us who have been born blinded by sin and headed for hell. And you extend an invitation, a gracious invitation for us to see if we'll simply admit that we are sinners who are desperately in need of a Savior. And I pray that if anyone's resisting Christ in their life or, or maybe just feeling okay because they, they know about Jesus, they consider him a good man, a, a, even a great man, a, a man of God, but not the Son of God, not God himself, Lord, that you would convict them this morning and draw them to yourself so that they could be truly saved and they could live in the light of Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.